Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow. Hello, welcome back to Payroll Question Time. Now, for those who don't know me, my name is Nick Day. I'm host of the Payroll Podcast. I'm also a Reward 300 member and I'm founder of JGA Recruitment, which is a specialist payroll recruitment company. But that's enough about me. Um, Today's topics, uh, we're going to start with the EU settlement scheme, the right to work, moving on to IR35 and finding out how people are settling in. Then pay on demand, which I know is a hot topic for many, many payroll professionals out there at the moment. We're going to talk about some of the implications of pay on demand, the gender and ethnicity pay gap, the alabaster ruling and Brexit and the implications. And of course, hot topics of the day. We're going to be talking a little bit about CGRS in there as well. And I mentioned that because one of our early questions from Karen is very much on that subject. Jump into the EU settlement scheme as well. Of course, we have a new guest today, John Dorney, who is a tier one rated specialist to talk us through this. John, tell us a little bit about what's happening in relation to the EU settlement scheme, because I think from my perspective, and we talked about this off air, the home office guidance is a little bit limited. So what do uh, employers need to do in preparation? It is a little bit limited. and I don't want to go into too much detail, but I think it's important to turn some of the background to it. You've got a date there, June the 30th, and it's 48 or 47 days to go until the uh, migrants have to register under the EU settlement scheme. And just for the, those who may not be so familiar with it, the EU settlement scheme came about following Brexit. Prior to Brexit, um, we were under European legislation, and European nationals would, uh, would be able to live, work in the UK, but exercising treaty rights. If they're living here for more than five years, they would get what old European scheme. Um, what happened was, as you might recall, on 31st January 2020, the uh, UK left the uh, Union and then there was a transition period or implementation period when we decided to do, well, what's going to happen when free movement ends on, on the 1st of January? So the UK introduced the EU settlement scheme. It was started being trialled about the August 2019 through academia. And the long and the short is that individuals uh, European nationals and their uh, European economic area nationals and their partners, it's mandatory, and this is the point of stress, it's mandatory, they have to register on the scheme by the 30th of June. The way the scheme works is uh, it's, it's an application, you can either use a smartphone, the situation is that on the 30th of June, that every European national and their partners or, and their dependents must be under the scheme. Because after the 1st of June, uh, 31st of June or 1st of July, they will then be working unlawfully. This then comes on to right to work checks. And this is this is what's happening. Until 30th of June, the right to work checks are as previously. And should, this is like a paper checking of, of the individual migrants' passports or their, um, their residency documents. From the 1st of July, the way it will work for, um, for new starters, and I would actually stress that as well, it's new starters. The check is done by an online check. So the Home Office's um, idea is that everybody uh, will have registered on the scheme by the 30th of June. Therefore, when employers do the online check, they should be able to pop up on uh, the picture of the individual migrant and take a picture or a PDF scan of that for their file. The, the point is that you have, to, you have to be on the scheme registered by the 30th of June. What employers can do, what they can't do, employers... You can't actually provide any legal advice to um, migrants uh, because to do so without being qualified is actually a criminal offence. But what you can do is you can point them to government, uh, gov.uk websites, give them a steer on, on, on what to do and let them know that the 30th of June they do have to regularise the position. 
In terms of the right to work checks, as I say, at the moment it's a paper check. The old rules are in place until the 30th of June. And so if you have got a, a European migrant or a European migrant family member coming to you now, you can do the checks previously by taking a copy of the document presence of the individual and recording it um, on, on file. The other thing, as I said before, is you don't have to repeat the checks. So if we have any European nationals who are already working for us and we've done the right to work check already, then that's fine. You can forget about it. You don't need to do it again. It's only for those nationals who are coming in, joining us off the 1st of July. The reason that the changes come about is because you think about it, with Brexit happening at 11 o'clock, well, Brexit done in January, but the, the transition period, or the implementation period, ended at 11 p.m. on 31st December. So any European migrants who are in the UK, exiling treaty rights or residents, were sort of in under the wire. But since then, you've got people coming in post-Brexit who won't be eligible to join the scheme and therefore won't have um, be under the second scheme. And those individuals have to demonstrate their uh, right to work checks under the points-based system, same as you would with somebody under the old tier two uh, general migrant visa or skill worker visa, as it's now called. As I say, the employers, what you have to do is let people know about it, but um, there is no obligation on you to do anything to actually uh, to assist or mentally help them. The future issues that I can see is is way it works is when you apply for the EU supplement scheme, you either get two types of status. You either get um, free settlement status or you get residence, uh, full residence status if you've been in the UK for five years or more. If you get the pre-settled status, then um, that will give you five years to stay in the UK. And during that time, once you get to five years, you can apply for settled status. And obviously, those who've got settled status can get from them. We'll have it all automatically. The issue that I see is I'm not sure that the Home Office has actually uh, made quite clear that this is a mandatory requirement. And also that this is the important thing, that all European nationals who are already here under free movement of workers' rights and who already have got permanent residency under the old rules, they also have to get residency under the EU settlement scheme. If you if have permanent residency as European national previously, that's great. You've still get a, got to get on a new scheme by the 30th of June. And that's the same for their, for their dependents. And I'm not sure that's absolutely clear. The other issue that they have with, with the scheme is it's quite odd because if you get the pre-settled status, which allows you to stay in the UK for five years and then go for the settled status, you can actually leave the UK for two years and then still come back and carry on working. The problem is when you go for settled status, you can't have been out of the UK for more than six months in a 12 month period. So what's going to what could quite conceivably happen is you get people getting pre-settled status five years they leave the uk for over six months or eight months then come back and then when they actually go for settled status at the five year period they can't because they can't satisfy the residency requirements so that that's that's one of the issues i think uh, for the future the home office have said that anybody who is late because then people are saying there's going to be lots of people who are late in applying who don't realize that they could apply they will give them um, a sort of as long as they've got a reasonable excuse they were given 28 days to make an application and at which point they can get the residency. The issue is important because if you employ somebody without them having the requisite permission to work in the UK, then the starting point is £20,000 fine. And if you knowingly um, employ somebody who's got the right to work, it's unlimited fine and the directors can go to prison for up to five years. So it is quite serious. On top of that, um, as, as most departments like to do these days, they like to name and shame. So you get your name put up on the, uh, on the um, Home Office's website saying, culpable of um, unlawfully employing uh, people and also a sponsorship license which many many employers are now getting because of brexit to be able to um, tap into the european 
uh, labour market, you will lose your licence. So it's actually quite serious consequences. But distilling it down, the EU settlement scheme is mandatory. All the EEA migrants and their partners and dependents need to register by the 1st of June. And there are right-to-work checks from 1st of July will be either for those who got rights under the EU settlement scheme will be an online check. And for those who um, aren't here under the EU settlement scheme but are here under some other visa mission will be the old uh, right-to-work checks. Super. And I think that hopefully answers the question we've had come in from Bab Dunseeth, which says um, is, is a question here. But what do we need to do for onboarding staff remotely now? And obviously the new world of work is a lot of remote workers for validating their right to work online. If we can't actually you know, physically meet these individuals, you know, can we do it via scanned passport or what's what's the, the correct process we should be adopting in this in the new world of work? That's a very good question, Nick. The, the, the situation was under old rules, the way we do it is we check the appropriate documents in the presence of the holder and says found being a true copy. Because of COVID, the Home Office changed that said you could actually check as long as the individual scans their documents to you and you have a, like a like we do now, Teams or Skype or Zoom call and they you check your scan copy against the, the migrant holding up their passport into, into the, um, the camera, that would count as a, an amended right to work check. Um, which doesn't now actually need to be repeated when the migrant actually just start working physically in the premises. That was going to last until the 16th of May. The Home Office just announced it's been changed. Off the top of my head, I can, I, I'm not sure. I think it's now exchange, extended to about the 15th of June or something like that. The point is, you can do it remotely at the moment, and you need to check the Gov.uk guidelines to see how long this, um, this arrangement is going to be extended till. It's not permanent. At the moment, you can. It's definitely until June. Super. You, you must have think it might have to become permanent at some point, though, if we continue with remote workers across the UK, you know, employing someone from Scotland to run a payroll in, in Suffolk, it's quite difficult to sometimes meet these individuals if it's 100% home base. So do you think this is likely to stay or do you think it will revert back? We're dealing with the Home Office, so no. No, this is an accommodation, but as I say, the actual test at the moment, this is for migrants generally, as I say, sure. for you. In, um, nationals, they should all be on the EU settlement scheme, so we can just check them online. All you need is that they can give you an access code, the date of birth, and we can check those, no problem. Anybody else, you do need to check the original documentation. As I say, there's a dispensation at the moment where you can check, you can have a scan and check it over, over, over Zoom. Um, but you can also sort of, I'll look at reluctance to do it, you can pop them in the post. So again, if, you, if, you, if yourself, Nick, you could say, well, actually, I'm, I'm 200 miles away from John, it's a bit of an effort to get to see you. I can say, fine, but can you post me your original passport? And you know, I, I can check it. The, the requirement is I have to check the original documents in the presence, and that includes um, video conferencing of, of migrants. Super, fantastic. Well, let's jump in then to IR35. If you look at uh, IR35 and enforcement, all of the high-profile cases recently uh, have tended to be those uh, in broadcasting. Uh, and if you're looking for the most high-risk occupation uh, to face some form of IR35 inquiry, it would be that. And Gary is, is now, as it's reported, uh, facing a potential overall tax bill, uh, I think just a shade under five million. Uh, about 3.6 of, of that relates to income tax uh, and the remainder uh, in respect of NI. And uh, I suppose it's, it's part of a, a continuum uh, of HMRC's focus um, in this sector. Uh, and it's probably fair to say that the outturn of that for HMRC has been a, a fairly mixed bag. Uh, in terms of Paul Hawksby um, talk sport, uh, I think they were successful uh, in that one. And uh, that was a tax liability of, I think, of around 140,000. 
Uh, there was uh, Eamon Holmes, of course, who faced uh, the same issues. And uh, in terms of what his liability was, that's variously been reported between 250,000 and 2 million. And of course, Christina Ackroyd as well. But equally, HMRC hasn't been successful in a number of uh, other cases, particularly Kay Adams at the BBC and uh, Lorraine Kelly, uh, who was facing potential liability, I think, which was uh, around £1.2 uh, million. Pounds. And uh, when you're looking at this particular area, when you look at these high-profile presenters, um, it, it really does turn on some fairly fine margins, generally looking at issues of control uh, and mutuality of obligation. And if you put all of those, you know, five or, or six decisions together uh, and try to look at the clear distinctions between all of them, uh, quite frankly, sometimes it's pretty difficult to see some clear blue lines uh, and why it is that, that the tax tribunal has gone one way on one case uh, and one way uh, on another. Um, but I suppose that, that the very nature of a, an IR35 inquiry is that it's very much fact specific. Uh, and whilst you can apply the general tests uh, of employment whilst looking at it. Uh, all of them are, are somewhat different. Uh, who knows uh, with, with Barry, based on uh, the previous decisions, quite frankly, it could go one way or another. Excellent, fantastic. And from a payrolling perspective then, Simon, how have you seen things settling in? We're a few weeks in now. Um, what's your experience been and what's the feedback been that you've been, uh, you've been hearing in the market? In relation to IR35, I think there's yeah. still rumblings around. So I think people are starting to wake up. So many were prepared. There are others that weren't. And they're just starting to realise that maybe they do have IR35 contractors to consider. And then we've got the more recent publications that have come out from HMRC, which talk about activity of umbrellas and the mucky umbrellas as well, if I call them that. In, in relation to fraud, uh, which the BBC have been focusing on. So generally, I've got to say, peril-wise, pretty good for those that know what it's about. Uh, but there's probably still a lot out there that don't know it's actually impacted. So that's all right. I think Sybil's going in out slightly. Let me jump over then to Lou quickly, because Lou, you, you're a bit of an expert here, because you've dealt with R35 in the public sector from before as well, right? So this is nothing new to you. Um, what observations are you making now that this is really impacting the private sector as well. Back many, many years ago when it came in to local government and in particular the, the local um, council that I worked in, we had a very proactive director and finance team. So there was a thorough exercise to ensure that there were procedures put in place so that each month there was a review of, for example, the invoicing that has was coming in. I think that's something that maybe now we're in May you know, we're into our second month that people maybe need to go back and evaluate and make sure that they do have those procedures in place, that there is a review of invoices. And it's not just about the payroll team. Obviously, the, the bottom line for payroll in IR35 is the responsibility to make those payments and to report via the RTI submissions, but it's a business as a whole. You know, each person who signs off an invoice has the responsibility to know and understand about that individual that they might be signing off some time for, to step back and think, should I be making that, uh, making the teams aware that this person should actually be paid via the payroll rather than via a consultancy? And I think it's about the whole business looking at it. You know, May to me, it's going to be the month where, as Simon's already said, business will start to think, oh, 
we don't have a procedure in place or, oh, that person needs to quickly get online and get this resolved. You know, from a, a managed payroll point of view, we have had businesses come and they want us to go back and look and review over the last year what has happened in our business so that they are actually compliant with IR35 and to ensure that the records are correct. Uh, and I imagine that's something that you've been, Samantha, because obviously you've got a lot of client payrolls from your side. So what is, is that similar? Is that, do you echo the similar thoughts to Lou? Yeah, absolutely. Um, similar thoughts. O oddly enough, I was, I was talking to colleagues about the very subject of, um, of payroll working reforms this morning. And I was asking those at the front line, you know, how is this impacting you? And I have to say the responses make me kind of mirror what Simon's um, already shared in terms of his concerns. I think there's a lot of clients who maybe haven't got the message because we're not seeing any from the client base that we would expect to see, maybe some more additions to the uh, payroll, we're not seeing them and identified as off-payroll workers. So we, we were just actually discussing whether or not, you know, kind of a 10, 20-minute webcast for clients just to remind them these are the rules, these are the Spread your, you know, spread your tendrils around the business. Make sure that you know who's providing services and in what, in what format. Uh, and of course, we go back to this, you know, potential risk of mucky umbrella companies, um, as Simon uh, used. Uh, and a common question, of course, is what is an umbrella? company and there are perfectly legitimate umbrella companies that are set up to support individuals who provide their services either through um, uh, a limited company and who are looking for somebody to do the administration for them because they will process their, their payroll for page earning tax in essentially taking them on as an employee but if you if you have an umbrella organization either because you're using their services or because you're considering using the services of an umbrella company, it's been it's been aware if they're offering to save you taxes, have more in your pocket and less to the taxman, um, then be warned. The chances are that that umbrella company is not operating legitimately, um, and you know watch out for signs of that. That promise of saving significant taxes invariably fails to stand up under any uh, investigation, and HMRC absolutely. Absolutely. never kind of rubber stamp any umbrella organization so if, if that statement is being made you know you need to be aware that they're likely not to be legitimate and actually you risk then not only being given a big tax bill by hmrc at a later point because of non-compliance not yours but theirs um, but also potentially you end up in a situation where your taxes that are being made uh, deductions from your pay aren't being paid over to hmrc so you could end up with a double tax bill and that's one of the big key risks that we need we need to get that message out there so that every every taxpayer knows um and every any every individual knows sorry nick i think it's important just to point out that the government website has the 10 things about due diligence that you need to be aware of and you know it is a quick referral point for businesses and also back to the what we've said for the last year over the furlough claims evidence everything you need to have your evidence for the decisions that you're making and have that saved down so that if you're asked questions you're able to go back and say what you were referring to sorry john 
Yes, no, because I'm thinking... A few points, uh, if I can, Nick, just generally on IR35 and where we're at. Um, I think I'll mirror points that other people have made, that there are still a lot of organisations that are still just working up to it. And if they have, haven't properly due diligence their supply chain. Um, in terms of what I have seen as some broad themes, is that there are a significant number of organisations who just don't want to get engaged with the risk uh, in it at all. Uh, and there are a fair amount who are insisting that there will be no PSCs in the supply chain uh, at all. Uh, and additionally, where there is an assessment which is inside IR35, uh, then there's a, a general movement um, towards agencies uh, and potentially umbrellas. So, of course, not universal, and it's always difficult to extrapolate your own experience and, uh, and generalise it across everything. But those are some of the themes that, that I've been seeing there. Yeah, no, I'd agree. And I think um, to echo something Samantha said, is it's it's worth as an employer being wary that the contractor may choose an umbrella company that works for them. But it's you know we've got an obligation to check that it's something because it'll be us that gets the employer that gets hit with the tax bill if it's not right. Um, interestingly, as a recruiter, we've had a lot of uh, contractors contact us about implications to going into different umbrellas offering different pension schemes. And there was, you know, we always talk about what they might earn from a day rate, but actually it's really impacted some of their pension contributions when they've had to go inside R35. What's, what's been your experience, um, Andy, now that we're a little bit further ahead? Uh, what have been your observations? I think um, the important thing is that the employer, when they realise they've got people that they're paying as contractors, so fee-based people, you know, invoices, etc., that they check. First of all, they should determine whether or not it's a personal service worker, so someone who would be automatically covered for, for pensions, as opposed to an IR35. So they've got to work it out. Is this person truly self-employed and therefore outside of automatic enrollment? Are they a personal service worker, so it looks like self-employed, but aren't, and therefore covered for automatic enrollment? Or is it a limited company? etc and if it is truly IR35 then there won't be covered for automatic enrollment but if it's paid for an umbrella company then they are an employee normally of the employee of the umbrella company from our perspective and we would expect them therefore to be uh, automatically enrolled if they meet the criteria and pension contributions and of course the employer bit actually comes out the fee that's been paid for their services as well as the employer's national insurance and the fee for running the payroll so it's quite a messy interesting setup what is qualifying earnings what is pensionable needs to be clearly defined i think oh well i'm sure we'll be coming back to this subject in future pqts i'm going to jump over to our next subject area it's something that for me i'm hearing loads about in the recruitment market it's pay on demand we want to talk a little bit today about the implications of pay on demand and i'll i'll start this off early because we've spoken a little bit off air not all of us come from the same uh, viewpoint on pound demand. So uh, in terms of what, uh, what we think about it, but more importantly, we want to get to the, the nuts and bolts of the implications of it today. So I'm going to kick off. Um, let's kick off quickly, actually, with a poll before we get into this. I'll be interested to get a temperature check on how people are feeling about pound demand in the market. So at the moment, um, with regards to pound demand, do you already have it? Is it working well for your workforce? Uh, something you don't have, but actually you've heard good things and you're looking into potentially bringing it in. Perhaps you've you've never looked at it, don't like it, or you've never approved a, a pay advance or loan request. Or perhaps you've never even been asked for an advance or loan. It'd be interesting to see what uh, what the listeners and the viewers are, are feeling about this. And when we get those results, I'm probably going to jump it over to uh, to you, Simon, because um, 
I'd be interested to get your your take on on where we are from an implication perspective on, on pay on demand. OK, sure. Uh, on the survey, I imagine that most um, uh, I'm thinking that most won't be using them. But uh, but certainly we know that lots of people are potentially looking in this area. And uh, yeah, we can talk about, I guess, one of the risk areas associated with this is that it's actually an unregulated uh, market at the moment. So uh, uh, interesting times. That touches on our first question that's already jumped in. I will come back to those poll results in just a second. Ogawa has already jumped in with a question about how it's going to affect RTI submissions. Is it going to be a disguised remuneration of PAYE purposes? Uh, will it affect universal um, credits and other bits as well? So I'm going to tackle all of that in this discussion, Jacqueline, I hope. Um, but before we get there, interestingly, uh, let's uh, kick off with these poll results. So what are your thoughts on this then, Simon? Yeah, they're exactly where I thought they'd be, actually. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the highest result on the no. And uh, and equally, I mean, you've got a 72% there where actually it's not really been a consideration. But however, it's, it's developing, isn't it? So there's a 28 area of thinking, yeah, let's uh, look at this. I think when it comes to pay on demand, Samantha, let me take it to you. We all think we know what it is, but maybe it's worth having a conversation about what it is and what it isn't. So can you explore that area a little bit for, uh, for our viewers? Indeed, indeed. Pay on demand is considered in, in its ideal format. And I have to say to anybody who's joined us today, we were almost at odds. Uh, well, almost at odds. We were at odds, almost at loggerheads um, on our early call this week. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of those for and against this. Um, so it's for employers who use it. And I'll be honest, I, you know, 12 percent are currently using it and it works well. And I would love to hear, you know, the arguments for because, you know, we do need balance in every discussion and debate. So I'd love to hear in the chat box what those ideas are for um, this. Um, it's uh, in its commonest form, it's seen as a uh, an addition to the benefits, the reward platform that an employer offers to their uh, individuals. And it means that an individual can receive an amount of money an advance. Um, Simon would say it's a loan. I would say it's a pay advance in advance of payday, in advance of their pay, because they find themselves in a situation where they have that financial need. And uh, a, a good employer will will monitor the situation. So as not to the idea is to replace these payday loans that um, charge horrendous amounts to individuals who really can't afford to pay those amounts and who find themselves in that terrible situation of spiraling debt. Quite often it's pay that has already been earned. So it might have been an overtime payment, for example, and the employer might be uh, employee might be able to draw down on that amount. Uh, but they've already earned it in advance of payday. And then when it comes to payday, the ultimate reconciliation, i.e. it's repaid uh, before they receive their net pay. It's very popular in the US. And I'm pleased to hear those questions being asked um, already by Nick about the implications for RTI, because this has always been my biggest concern. I remember when real-time information was being rolled out. One of the questions I often got asked was, rather than report on a monthly basis, because we pay our employees weekly, but we really don't want to pay for a monthly payroll service. So can we just give our employees kind of a, a bit of money each week and then kind of reconcile it at the end of the month? A very clear message from HMRC was, no, you can't. Um, and so my, my concern would be is if this were rolled out whole scale to employers uh, in this country, I think we would see 
HMRC and the Department for Work and Pensions with a universal credit hat on, wanting to take a closer look as to whether or not actually they could benefit from this with more regular um, submissions uh, when these payments were, were made down to the individuals. At the moment, there, 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 there is no allocation of that. There's no recognition of that in the RTI process. So I think there's huge implications if this were to become a, a wise popular uh, kind of service that employees drew down on on a regular basis. But I have to say there are employers who uh, that 12 percent uh, represents in terms of our poll findings who do use it and they find it works well. And I've seen presentations from them and their employees who speak very highly of it. But they're well-managed schemes that don't run the risk of employees falling into a spiralling debt um, situation, which would be one of my key concerns on this, not just the long-term impact of real-time information and universal credits, but that continuing spiralling debt. Nobody wants to, to put their employees in that situation. So it's quite nice that from those poll results, a large 70-odd percent already don't process or have never been asked for advances or loans. So it strikes me that that might not be the biggest long-term consideration. Uh, even though it's a hot topic in the minute. From my perspective as a, as a recruiter, obviously we're always looking at things that attract staff and retain staff. So if I worked for Nick Day pay-on-demand solutions, the kind of marketing I would be giving around the positives of this is we live in a, a streaming world, an on-demand world of Netflix and Ubers, and it's a natural evolution of the pay cycle to be on-demand. This is the way the, the future of work is going. We know statistically that 66% of employees are relying on high-cost credit, and many of those that take it out actually take it out knowing that they're already going to struggle with the repayments. We know that mental health is on the increase, and mental health has a huge connection to financial wellness. So I'd argue that some close access to you know, uh, pay-on-demand might help ease and give you more control over your finances to, to release some of those burdens. The suppliers out there that I've met, I've done a couple of podcasts with owners of different pay-on-demand solution providers, but they say that they don't offer, it's not a loan, they charge a per-transaction fee, um, which is as little as sort of a pound per transaction, that's how they charge. Um, so there is a charge applied to these solutions, but they'd argue it's, it's not a loan. And there's, there's different solutions coming out all the time. So I think there was a lot of positives from a recruiter perspective, from a retention point of view, from a financial wellness point of view. But let's flip on the other side. From a, I'm not a legis legislative expert. So, Simon, let's bring it back to you. What are your views on, on, on this as a, as a solution and whether or not it will be really adopted on a wide scale? Well, the concept of pay on demand, I actually like very much. Um, my view is that this isn't actually pay on demand at all. So the pay on demand I'm talking about is flexibility and actually having true wages and, uh, and flexibility on choice of when you want to be paid to meet your own chosen regularity. These pay on demand schemes are referred to as the FCA, as employer salary advance schemes. They don't fall within the credit uh, law or the loan law, so they're unregulated. And they'd actually say that some of the fees charged actually place them higher than overdrafts from your bank and other facilities that are available, even from credit cards, because some of them are fairly low. So it's just be careful, because if you take out uh, £10 and you charge £1, that is 10% for mm -hmm. having that £10 for a week. So multiply that by 52, and you've just been charged 52%. 
Uh, it's actually understanding some of those, but there are the other implications and the others mentioned by the FCA for the fact that they're, they're potentially seeing an element of those that are dependent on getting money out early, which at a low rate, to then reach a point of the month where they need to go to a payday lender to make up the difference because they don't have that money coming in anymore. And so it gets into that sort of spiral. But that's the, the element. And I think going back to the point of view of, actually, this isn't actually pay. It is an advance. It is a good facility for those who want to manage it and need emergency money but can't get that through other means. But if it's really wages on demand, then it would fall under the on or before principle of RTI. And so it's it's kind of, let's call it what it really is and not pretend it's something else. And if that works, fantastic. That's kind of where I come from a little bit, Nick. But as a capability, that's fine. But let's go in with our eyes open. Because we've also got to be careful as the ESAS company is a partner of the employer. So will there potentially be challenges that the fees paid um, would reduce pay for national minimum wage purposes? Uh, could it impact universal credit and RCI? And at the moment, it's not. It's an unregulated credit capability, um, as stated by the FCA. They don't plan on bringing in regulation for it at this point because it's in its infancy. Uh, but it's just being careful with it and understanding what it really is. So sometimes they say you're getting your earned wages. You're not. You're getting a loan or a credit capability until you get your earned wages, and then you'll pay it back. Uh, if it's called that way, I think that's fine. And also, I think there's then, uh, which Andy may be able to come into, um, actually, how does that sit with qualifying earnings or pension AE? if it's actually truly your wages on demand. And uh, so it affects so many things. So the question is good, but at the moment, ESAS is not considered a payment of wages at all. It's actually a temporary credit facility uh, until you get paid normally. I've got, I've got a question for you, which I'm going to just reference early doors before we get there. So some of the average um, withdrawals on this basis, we look at, I, I had a look at the different uh, providers that I've spoken to on podcasts, and the average that the people have access to this, they're taking around about £70 a week in advance. Now, obviously, we don't know what they're earning, but that's an average amount. Um, so not, not, not their full earnings, and of, often with these solutions, you can limit how much of your earnings you can you can take in advance as well. So there's lots of different things to consider if you are thinking about a pay-on-demand solution. But from a, uh, a broader view, Lou, what I'd like to know is, I've asked Simon this before, which is why I'm not asking Simon deliberately this time. In the future, if this is going to be widely adopted, do you think this is the start of the dissolution of the monthly pay cycle as we know it? We, we, we've come to love the monthly pay cycle. We love the month, you know, because that's when our mortgages come out, when our bills come out. But in the future, is this the beginning of the end of the monthly pay cycle as we know it at the moment i don't believe it is i'm not saying that there shouldn't and there could be more flexibility around when a payroll is ran from my point of view my personal opinion is along with pay and demand then to me if that's seen as a reward and a benefit we also then have to build in financial well-being for employees so that they're educated and they know then how to better manage their money 
for the bills that they have agreed that they will pay. From my point of view as a payroller and as a payroll supervisor, over the decades, have I ended up with employees coming in and demanding that they need help, they don't have any money, they can't pay their bills. So if they couldn't manage on a weekly wage, which is still, I mean, there's still a lot of weekly paid employees. If they couldn't manage, where are we going to go with on-demand pay? And it's about, so I have no objection to people getting paid on demand, but to me, we need to do the bigger exercise, which is educate people on how to better manage their finances so that they can eventually get out of the spiral. Because I have been that payroll supervisor standing in a reception with, you know, somebody distressed. I even have had somebody bring in their children to talk about they can't pay because they don't have any money. They don't have food. What am I going to do? And how can I get in advance and if you whenever you start down the route of giving advances how can that person always maybe get out of that trouble it's very hard i think that's a, a really sensible and, and important point to raise financial wellness as a as a learning point is, is much you know is, is ultimately really really important to work alongside so um, i think we've answered the questions that come in during the course of that quick conversation we had one from tracy just come in saying i thought the hmrc saw this as an interest-free loan which they don't recommend uh, i think that's probably in line with what you'd mentioned simon any further comment on that yes at the moment they don't see it as an interest-free loan so because it does fall outside the regulation but i think there's an element of what it so i think hmrc will look closely at what these are but actually i, I mean going along with lou i think there is an element and, and we've discussed this before in the past nick there is an element of giving people freedom more freedom to choose maybe when they're paid but what does that mean they'll get paid every day? I doubt it. But they may actually choose when they get paid every month to coincide with other bills. And I think uh, that's where I'd like to see pay on demand going. But I think the topic's been hijacked a bit for employee salary advance schemes. Um, uh, within the SD Works offering, flexible payment capability has been around in it for about 15 years. So if you want to do ad hoc payments, the capability is there now, but it's from the employer paying wages. And it's a, it's, a, it's the way it's packaged, right? It's the way that it's, uh, it's packaged. I think you've just highlighted there. Uh, good to hear. Just to finish off this subject before we jump into the gender and ethnicity pay gap section that uh, Anne Henwoods has posted, we offer financial advice to all of our employees. And that's... Uh, that echoes what you were saying, Lou, which is a, a great thing to be doing. So let's move on to the next subject then. I'd like to get the audience involved again. Um, we're going to talk about uh, gender and ethnicity pay gaps. So let's start with a poll. Um, how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted your ability to report and upload your gender pay gap results? So uh, perhaps it hasn't. We report and upload as normal. We have needed to adjust to take account of CGOS impact, but no other impact. We have appreciated the relaxation of reporting requirements. And while we're, while we're coming in, um, Andy, we spoke very briefly before we started this webinar that you were saying there's been a change, uh, an equal pay change, and um, it's going to have a massive impact on payroll as well. So perhaps as we uh, wait for these poll results to come in, you could just give us a bit of an up, uh, a brief update on what you're reading pre uh, pre webinar. Uh, well, I, I was just going to. We were just chatting about future topics, and one of those could be the fact, obviously, the Supreme Court made a judgment that it is okay for tribunals to consider, again, the webinar, I believe it was ladies working at um, ASDA, 
who are on the tools compared to the warehouse staff who are mainly men, um, to re the tribunal could reconsider whether or not the equal pay is being given. Now, if the tribunal decides to in favour of equal pay, as hasn't happened, then obviously um, the ladies need to be reimbursed that, that money, which will have an impact on many things, including pension entitlement, etc. So we wait to see what happens from um, the Supreme Court passing it back to the tribunals to consider again what the um, outcome is for an equal pay. And it's not just one, there's several, there's numerous cases, I believe, in, in the waitings, a bit like the gig economy. There's, there's lots of stuff going on in the background which could impact payroll. I don't know if yeah, Simon might have more of an update as well on that. It'll be a subject to come back to then, I think. Yeah, we've just had these results come in. Uh, Samantha, what are your thoughts on, uh, on these results? It says 50% the report and upload as normal, but 19% we don't have to comply with the, with the obligation. I'm pleased to see that top line 50%. Um, certainly, you know, last year, as the majority of us working in payroll were kind of struggling under the weight of uh, the pandemic and furlough and the coronavirus job retention scheme, we were very much aware that actually for many, it was almost business as usual. They might be working from home, but actually uh, preparing for the upload, reporting and uploading was that's business as usual. That's an everyday occurrence for them. Uh, and they were they were on it. And, and actually that last year's exception possibly came too late anyway to have had any real benefit for them. But it's good to see that 19 percent. And I think it's from this angle that my, my kind of thoughts were turning. And forgive me, it's it's the policy head I've got. I'm aware that when gender pay gap reporting first was introduced, of course, it's for employers with 250 employees or more in Wales, Scotland and England. The obligation is on them. So for smaller employers, um, it, there is no obligation to report and upload their, their results. Um, and so this 19 percent have probably thought, yeah, OK, don't need to think about uh, gender pay gap reporting. But when gender pay gap reporting was first introduced, the House of Lords carried out a review and published quite a scathing report, particularly on the legal profession for choosing, particularly for their partnerships who had chosen not to uh, report their gender pay gaps. But it made a recommendation that actually the Government Equalities Office consider reducing the headcount to 50 employees or more. Now, the response from government was, yeah, thank you very much. We'll take that on the take that feedback, uh, but we'll consider it when we carry out the statutory period of review, which I believe was a three-year period. I may be wrong there, but I think we're now hitting that three-year period. I'm quite keen to think about whether or not government will come back and say, actually, this is working well for these affected employers. Let's see it rolled out a little bit more. And, and supported by the outcome on this equal pay claim, I would like to emphasise, of course, that gender pay gap reporting is not about equal pay. It has a wider brief. And of course, I'd also be interested to know where we are with ethnicity pay gap reporting and see what impact that could have on an employer obligation going forward. But this is, again, a prime example of where payroll and HR um, or pay Payroll and other parts of the organisation need to work very closely together to ensure that they have accurate information. Absolutely agree with that. And so that Simon, we were talking um, pre-webinar about the uh, talk about the gender question because I understand from income tax purposes you can't be gender neutral, but obviously 
people can change relatively fluid now it can change gender um, whenever you decide to so how does that impact from a payroll reporting perspective uh, yeah, it adds a complication to it because uh, you're quite right. Uh, it's a question we frequently get asked is uh, someone's declared themselves to be gender neutral. Can the payroll accept that? And the answer is no, it can't. Uh, you have to declare a gender, male or female. Otherwise, HMRC will not accept the submission from the employer at all. So there are gender recognition requirements for taxation purposes. Although it has relaxed, but you'll find that this year on your P60 and probably last year on your P60, it no longer has a gender on it. It's gone. But two years ago, it did have it, but it's still a compulsory field on the RTI submission. So the gender for tax purposes is different to the gender for employment law purposes. And I think under gender equality and, and uh, the gender pay gap reporting, um, it's your stated gender that you want to be that is taken into account. So it offers, if I, if I put my cynical hat a little bit, an element of fluidity. I don't know if John or someone like that can comment a bit more on that fact, but there's an element of I can tell my employer I'm a cat if I wish to, uh, but I can't attack. Yeah, from, an, from an employment law perspective, um, uh, you're right. There was a, a fairly recent case um, uh, concerning uh, someone who was uh, transitioning worked for Jaguar Land Rover, and uh, I have to say that they were treated uh, pretty poorly within the workplace. Um, there were all sorts of comments that were made. Management didn't deal with things in an appropriate way, uh, and perhaps inevitably, um, in these type of cases, there was around toilet facility, uh, and which toilet facility could be used. And uh, it was so bad that uh, I think Jaguar uh, went down for an award somewhere in the region of £180,000, uh, which employment tribunals is, is right up there, uh, is the most significant. Um, but one of the uh, issues uh, that was resolved in the Jaguar case uh, was really the, the fluidity point uh, which Simon raises. Uh, and th there is a, a broad spectrum. Uh, of course, of, of gender identification. Uh, uh, and within that, uh, uh, you can have, of course, uh, people who are intersex, people who are non-binary, uh, and people whose gender identity can change uh, on a weekly basis or, or even indeed within the course uh, of a day. And before the, the Jaguar case, there was some debate uh, as to whether gender identity were, were rigid and there were a limited number. But, but I think the general direction of travel is that there is a spectrum uh, of gender identity. Uh, and to be quite frank, where you place yourself um, on that gender spectrum is really a, a matter for the individual. Uh, and of course, for, from an employment perspective, um, there used to be, uh, under the Free Equality Act law, uh, a need for some form of medical supervision when you were looking at issues uh, of gender identity. Uh, and there is none of that uh, anymore. So I think the general direction of, of travel uh, is all going uh, one way. Uh, I think to an extent there's been some recognition of that within government uh, with the decreased cost of the gender recognition certificate, uh, which was, uh, I think, £140 uh, and is now being changed to £5. Um, so, so certainly there's a, if you're looking at the spectrum, there's a fairly broad spectrum. And 
place themselves, I think, pretty much anywhere on that that they would wish to do. Uh, and you're not fixed on any particular identity um, at, at one point in time. Not only in, in R35, there are some distinctions between the tax perspective and the employment perspective. Sure, that makes sense. You put that really clearly. So thank you for that. And uh, Lou, I understand there's some impact on the JRS scheme as well. Yeah, I mean, the most important thing for today is it's the deadline for submission for your April reporting and submission and to make sure that you have all your evidence. I know I must sound like a broken record, but I can't reiterate enough how important it is to have the evidence relating to the period because there have been some changes from the 1st of May and um, I suppose what I've been referring to actually, um, forgive me, is CIPP had put out a flowchart to help me understand and remember the impact to the changes from the 1st of May and to take those all into consideration because the period, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Simon, because you're allowed to um, look up to and including the 2nd of March 2021 to see if an employee is eligible for CJRS, which is a slight change to the March 20 and the September, October 20. It sounds good for me, uh, Lou. I'm going to accept uh, your, your advice there. I guess the, the big challenge with the uh, furlough is, of course, those that have been on furlough are in effect excluded from, uh, to an extent, or distort the gender pay gap reporting statistics, aren't they? Because the stats from last year are reported this October and people are still on furlough now, won't be reported until next April. It's going to be a very strange couple of years. Actually, uh, Dorman's actually commented, uh, rather than a question, more of a, more of a report, just saying that uh, they report on pay gaps for, for gender plus voluntarily for ethnicity and also sexuality for the past two years. Next on the agenda for them is to consider voluntary disclosure of disability gap, but we need to first decide on the definition of disability. Uh, well, which I, so I, so I to pick up on the yeah, uh, uh, Nick, um, just in terms of, of where we're where we're up to, because sure, there was a, an initial consultation around uh, ethnicity uh, pay gap reporting, which I think it goes back to October 18, and there's a consultation with I think about three months later, uh, and, and the government has uh, leapt into inaction uh, concerning that. Uh, and nothing has really happened since, apart from an indication of Bayes, from Bayes in the middle part of last year, that the government was still looking at it. Um, so it hasn't progressed uh, in governmental terms uh, at any speed uh, whatsoever. And just as you'll have issues uh, in terms of disability, there's a, a live issue in terms of uh, ethnicity uh, as to how you're going to effectively cut it, uh, for example, whether the reporting should be between those who are white and all staff, or, or alternatively a breakdown of particular groups. Um, so uh, you'd anticipate that it's coming, it makes sense for it to be coming in, uh, when it will, in a, in a compulsory sense, uh, I think is stick your finger in the air. Sure, no, I appreciate that. So let's move on then to our last topic, which is something that I'm seeing 
lots and lots of questions about in various chat groups on Facebook and, uh, and other areas, which uh, links to Brexit and employment and the Alabaster ruling as well. It's uh, as a recruiter, as I say, it's a question that I don't fully understand. I see the word Alabaster a lot and I could, wouldn't even profess to start to try and explain it. So um, what I'd probably like to start with is maybe coming to you, Samantha, and just maybe just clarify what the alabaster ruling is just for those like me who are a little bit in the wilderness. Yes, uh, yes, no problem. And uh, I, I put my hand up earlier and, and confessed to having a personal interest here because my daughter's on maternity pay at the moment, which was until very recently SMP only. Um, so being told that she'd got a pay increase from or the company had got allocated a 2% pay increase um, to the workforce from July. Uh, my first question was, have you spoken to payroll about backdating that to your relevant earnings period? Um, and then I went on to explain why I was saying that. Uh, Becky obviously has learned to switch off from anything I talk about when I talk about payroll. So she didn't take any notice of me. However, let's have a look. What, what, what are we talking about when we talk about Alabaster? Well, we're talking about Mrs. Alabaster, who um, uh, took up a case um, against her employer regarding the statutory maternity pay payment that she had received at the point at which she went on maternity leave. The statutory maternity pay calculation, the 90%, a higher rate, didn't reflect the fact that she'd had a pay increase since the calculation was carried out. Now, Gillespie, which was an earlier case, had uh, rec had uh, talked about earnings in the relevant period. So it had looked at a pay increase that happened or affected the earnings in the relevant period. Whereas Alabaster went that step further and said, actually, my pay increase didn't happen in the relevant earnings period. It happened later. But now SMP doesn't reflect the pay that I'm on as I start my maternity leave. So I think SMP relevant earnings is wrong. Wherever you sit on that, um, <laughs> she, she went a long way through the courts uh, and appealed and continued to appeal. Uh, and the European courts ultimately agreed read with her, which is fine to a degree. We could yeah, we can accept that. We had accepted Gillespie. There was a certain amount of common sense. However, what the, what the ruling came out with was, right, OK, if any employee who is on maternity leave, if there is a pay increase that, that is introduced at any point during their maternity leave period, that will impact the earnings in the relevant pay reference period. So that's a long time. Anybody who's aware of their relevant period will know uh, it starts or it ends 15 weeks before the expected week of confinement or date of birth. Um, and it works forward or works back eight weeks. So we're looking at a heftily long period of time, any time from 23 weeks before baby's due right through to a year, uh, you know, 52 weeks after maternity leave um, has begun. So that's a long time. So any pay increase, which can include national minimum wage, that has now been confirmed, will affect earnings in the SMP 90% rate. Uh, we wanted to discuss that because it's an important one. Even now, it continues to be discussed and debated. And so we really wanted to, to kind of raise awareness. I have absolutely no doubt that anyone listening here today will know all about Alabaster. But just in case, um, that's why we wanted to discuss it. overview. I now feel skilled up. So that's good, Samantha. So let's, let's pick up on that national minimum wage piece then for you, Simon. What's the impact of national minimum wage, especially for those on furlough? In relation to this? Well, yes. Well, the significance of why national minimum wage is mentioned is because of the significant rise of those aged 23 to 25. 
So the national living wage now applies to those aged from 23. So in effect, they've had an 8 9% pay rise this year. If they're on maternity leave, does that impact their S&P average earnings calculation? And the implication from the Saturday Payments Consultation Group minutes is that national minimum wage raise is a pay rise, and therefore it should be taken into account when uh, calculating the qualifying period. I mean, I've got to say that's a policy legal view. Uh, other lawyers may come up with a different view, but that was the DWP view, uh, their legal advisors, that it does. And then that equally goes, because I'm sure uh, Sam, Lou and I, and, and maybe some of the others will see on social media the number of questions that are asked about uh, the calculation of average pay, is that generally you don't count furlough, but if they're on variable pay, what do you use? is that if you're returning people to normality and you didn't use normality in the qualifying calculation, you need to. So it's as if they were normal. And so it's just being aware of the implications of the alabaster. Before, the minimum wage rises have been probably quite modest, but for that 23, 24, 25 year age group, it's been significant. So you may need to go back and recalculate their S&P. But the importance of linking that with Brexit is that people will, will say that, of course, all these European judgments will now be dropped by the UK government. And, uh, and so it, that's what's uh, uh, sort of muted. But the reality is all the European judgments have been enshrined into UK law. I'm going to, I'm going to come to both uh, or either of the Johns on this in just a moment before we get to the, you know, the impact of Brexit on the UK cities. I just want to, we've got a, a lovely picture there of the Queen's speech 2021. Who would like to comment on the impact that the Queen's speech may have on as, as the Alabaster rulings? Well, that's just a lovely question, isn't it? <laughs> 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 I'm not sure that the Queen's speech had any impact on the alabaster ruling, but I could be completely wrong on this, completely. I know that um, she was covering off in her speech, she had covered off the veterans change that was to be implemented from April 21, but that isn't going to be reported through payroll until April 22. But that doesn't really answer the alabaster question, so I do apologise. No, I've got Simon giggling, so maybe I've got that wrong. Simon, fill us in on where we are. No, I think Lou's question, uh, response is absolutely spot on. <laughs> the, uh, the Queen's speech mentioned nothing on employment law. Uh, hence the, I guess linking it to it is because I think there's a great expectation that single enforcer um, proposals under the Matthew Taylor report would all be, uh, we've got, try to think uh, what the word is, exploitation of low paid workers, all those sorts of protections. And we're going to keep up with Europe. And actually, the Queen's speech said nothing. There we are. There you go. See, this is why we have the experts on the show, because they're in tune. Lou, straight hot off the press, answers it brilliantly. Let's bring it to the Johnsons. So what, what's the, the effect of Brexit on EU cases? Are we going to lose alabaster law as a result of us leaving the EU? I don't know which John would like to tackle that. So I, before we start the session, to actually go through all the European jurisprudence and the effects of Brexit would take hours and hours and hours. But in summary, I think Simon actually hit the nail on the head there. And the EU Withdrawal Act 2018, it pretty much, as at 11 o'clock on, um, well, as of this December 2020, um, all European law became crystallised and enshrined into UK law. 
And so therefore means everything that, that was in place then is still in place now. Although going forward, it can be the UK can actually introduce new legislation, implement um, new, new legislation and have new case laws. And that's our appellant courts, that's the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court, uh, could, could diverge apology uh, from, um, from, from European law if it wants to. And there's also a separate little agreement you might pick up on, on Brexit, uh, which is the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. And that's basically that in return for us giving a uh, sort of tariff quota to the trade deal, we've got, we, we, we agreed that we would not reduce employment law uh, rights below those on the 31st December 2020. And if we do do anything which has a material impact on trade or investment, then it sort of triggers that, that, that um, agreement and there could be some sort of arbitration or rebalancing through to taken. So basically, we have autonomy. We can do what we uh, want to do, but as long as it doesn't disrupt what's called the level playing field. And I think the point will be, just about my observation is, I think the courts will have lots to observe existing um, European court law. They'll also observe how that develops going forward, because although it's not binding, it would be persuasive. I think initially, um, courts um, departing from existing European law strikes me as being an, an appealable point in terms of the other side arguing they shouldn't have. Yeah, I, I, I think from a practical point of view, Nick, I mean, let, let's face it, if you take a step back, there's an awful lot of, of UK legislation which derives from, uh, from Europe. Um, uh, and some of it we've gold-plated. So, for example, the Tupi regulations, we've, we've gold-plated those, those regulations. And given that it's really going to take some form of positive step to, to take these things away, uh, then politically uh, it's going to be a, a difficult ticket uh, to do that, I think, even if the government wanted to, because... Uh, taking away workers' rights, uh, I'm not sure be a, a universally popular uh, manifesto commitment from anyone. Super. Well, we're going to jump into some hot topics. Before we do, we're going to go on to our last poll of today. And while we run this poll, I'm going to ask a question back to Samantha. But let's start with the poll first. Uh, when a pay increase is implemented to your workforce, do you automatically calculate and process any back pay that may be due to women in receipt of SMP? Only recalculate if asked by affected employees. Don't do anything different for women on maternity leave. Or what is alabaster? So while we're getting those results, Samantha, I've had a question in from Jackie Yang that just says, would it be possible to provide some backup of what you just said in relation to the maternity back pay due to salary increase? Some sort of confirmation, but as in a kind of link to government guidance on this, because it is yeah, it is covered uh, on gov.uk. So we have kind of very straightforward uh, guidance on gov.uk, which we can post a link to. Um, and then also the statutory uh, HMRC's statutory payments manual goes into a little bit more detail um, on the alabaster calculation. So uh, we can provide a link to that as well. Um, it, it, did I hear you right, Nick? Is that what you said? Yeah, I think so. It's just reconfirming your, your initial description of what it was and if there's any additional uh, information we can give. And just to remind everybody, we will be sending out um, some additional information post this uh, recording as well, which we can answer your questions and give you some links to as well. I am delighted it. to see that 87% at the very top. Uh, and I'm hoping that my daughter's amongst that 4%. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yes, we will post some links um, either in the chat or on the answer document that I know Steve puts together uh, at the end of this and then that will take us to further reading there's also we'll there'll be we'll throw in a link there to the actual ruling um, so if you have a problem with uh, sleeping 
at night, um, that's a nice background <laughs> read for you. So. We've had quite a nice comment in from Anne Dodd, who just simply says, I would vote for anyone who got rid of the awful alabaster lords. <laughs> yeah, everyone loves it. Definitely. Me too. <laughs> yeah, very, very common response, that one. Totally perverse. Well, I think that leads us nicely into the hot topics. I know there have been a few updates to JRS and things we want to get through. Before we get there, I wonder if we can just jump through some of the questions we haven't been able to reach, reach to yet, if that's okay. One was quite early on in the, uh, in the webinar where uh, Karen Thompson asked, has anyone heard any rumours that the job retention bonus may actually come to fruition? I ask, as on the new corporation tax returns, there are boxes now to report JRS, but also any overclaims of the JR. B. Does that make sense? Well, sort of. I think uh, the answer is we still don't know. So um, the bonus was suspended and there's been no formal announcement of it being reinstated, although there was some hint of reviewing at a later point. So we may find that the uh, HMRC uh, are just keeping the options open or they don't know what to do either. So they may have started projects which they've just continued until they know Otherwise, we've got to remember we went through this exercise of the uh, the new scheme that was going to be launched in November, uh, October, November sort of time, which was then pulled uh, that weekend of it going live, and uh, the job retention scheme was extended uh, and now extended to September. But I think there's a general view that no, you won't get the bonus, but that's an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> We've had another question from Catherine O'Neill. So please can I check the tax implications of paying employees a fixed amount to cover working from home costs, e.g. IT desk equipment? Uh, Samantha, perhaps you could help me with that question. Obviously, we are aware from the last budget that the there was, an, not the last budget, might have been the one before that, uh, there was an increase to the home working allowance that would attract tax relief or from £4 to £6 per week. And that can either be paid by the employer free of tax and NICs or it can be claimed by the employee, and where the employee claims it, there will be an adjustment to their tax code. Um, and last year, HMRC said, even if you haven't been working all of the year at home, they will allocate the whole year's worth of allowance to your uh, tax code and an adjustment that way. Now, that's not to say that an employer couldn't pay a more generous amount, but then we'd need to be seeing evidence. We'd need to be keeping that those records as loose. Uh, emphasise the importance of keeping records and evidencing the reason why those higher amounts were being paid. But we'd have to be careful if we're actually picking up an employee's bill. So if, for example, we picked up an employee's home telephone bill, it's a pecuniary liability and it was, would be subject to class one NICs um, in the usual manner. So yes, higher amounts can be claimed and paid, but there needs to be evidence. Whereas the six pounds can be paid per week or claimed per week without the need to provide evidence. Thank you, everyone, for putting your questions in. I'm going to finish with this question for today. Any we haven't got to, we will cover in a document that will come out after this recording. So thank you for submitting them. Hopefully we've covered most of them during the episode. The last question I'm going to bring to you, Lou, if I may. It says, can you please, please discuss PENP calculations? <laughs> I'll admit, I don't know what they are, so I'm hoping that uh, oh, <laughs> I've gone oh, to oh. the right people. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a salmon. That's, that's, that's going to get carried forward to next month. <laughs> 
to me whenever it comes to PEMP I mean from a payroller I would be going back to employment law and for tax to fully understand an employee's contract and what it says and have that discussion with somebody with that knowledge as a payroller I wouldn't be completely comfortable with the law the way it is and with the information I don't know how Sam and Simon feel you really need to understand the contract and the periods that are being paid and you need to take advice to make sure that it's going through the payroll correctly because it's one of those ones it's like alabaster but even worse really the it's not something that happens every single pay run. So therefore, you need to go back into the detail every time it arises because yeah. different employers have different contracts and have different terms and conditions. Um, I don't know, John, if you agree with that or not. Uh, yes. Uh, well, I, I think PEMP is, is complicated for, for anyone, whether you're in payroll or an employment lawyer or, or potentially even a tax lawyer. Uh, and yeah. uh, when you first start looking at it, it's not the easiest thing to apply. Uh, and, it, and it takes quite a long time to even understand it. Yeah. It needs to be noted, it was a simplification, though. It was a simplification. So, uh, but Lou's quite right, and, and it's a view that we tend to take here as well, is you're actually starting to talk about regulated activity. Uh, so what can your payroll professional actually help you with? Well, actually, I think it's for the uh, termination process to define what is PEMP or not, and therefore, what's tax and NI free or subject to, to tax and NI or what's subject to class 1A? Um, you could say, well, it's just a calculation and a payroll. Can you get on with it? But it actually involves uh, giving taxation advice, which is regulated. I'm conscious of time. I think we've got time for a very, very brief. I'm going to come back to you, Simon, on this one. I know we're going to try and keep it concise before we sign off for today's uh, payroll question time. But some concise JRS updates, if there are any to report back. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> your deadline's today. Get it in <laughs> for April. Otherwise, you're too late. And uh, don't be confused on the earnings views. You've got to go back to the original point. So you've now got three judgment points for reference salary and usual salary. Look at when they started their employment and were first reported as it's the earliest point still counts. And uh, furlough pay is not subject to national minimum wage. So don't think you have to raise it because you'll be committing fraud. There you go. Perfect. And may I just take this opportunity to give a huge thanks to all of our panel, including our new panellist, John Dorney, today for their excellent wisdom covering some complex subjects. And I look forward to welcoming all of you and hopefully some others as well. So please share this with your friends and payroll colleagues at the next PQT in June. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the Payroll Podcast with Nick Day of JGA Recruitment. If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time. <laughs>